Time to celebrate our listeners who are having a birthday today, and the following listeners will be celebrating today, Lauren Thompson of Mallard and Sharon Strom of Ames. Happy birthday to the both of you. And you're sharing your birthday today with celebrities actor Jacqueline Smith, who turns 78, Wheel of Fortune host Pat Sajak is 77, musician Bootsy Collins turns 72, Actor James Pickens Jr. is 71. Guitarist Keith Strickland of the B-52s is 70. Actor Lauren Tews is 70. Actor D.W. Moffat is 69. Actor-singer Rita Wilson is 67. Actor Patrick Breen is 63. Actor Dylan McDermott is 62. Uh, and country singer Keith Urban turns 56. Seth McFarland turns 50, and John Hader turns 46. You are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. If you are hearing us on your television on Iowa PBS and you're not a registered IRIS user, please give us a call at area code 515-243-6833 so we can get you on our list. We need to know who is listening in order to keep our services free. And here's a reminder that at the request of our listeners, Iris is moving the air times of some of our newspapers. The Mason City Globe Gazette and Fort Dodge Messenger have been combined into a one-hour show that you will hear at noon. At 1 p.m., it's the Waterloo-Cedar Falls Courier. At 2 p.m., you'll hear the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. Your Cedar Rapids Gazette is now on at 3 p.m. each day. At 4 p.m., it's the Sioux City Journal. At 5, you can hear the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil. 6 p.m. is the rebroadcast of the Des Moines Register. At 8 p.m., you'll hear readings from the Iowa Source on the Iowa Hour. 9 p.m., it's Golden Radio. 10 p.m. is the Wall Street Journal. And we wind up the day with the New York Times at 11 p.m. Now it's time to read today's obituaries, and here's Linda. George N. Karnas was born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin on July 7, 1949, to Greek immigrant parents Nicholas and Vasiliki Karnas. He attended Marquette University and graduated from Drake University and Drake Law School. Following graduation, he was in private practice before becoming an assistant Polk County attorney, specializing in arson and criminal cases. George was well respected in the legal community for his fairness. He had many friends in the sports world and enjoyed supporting them. He passed away October 21st due to complications from surgery. He is survived by his wife of 38 years, Christine, nicknamed Nina, and his sister, Anastasia, partner Stacy Polidoran. There will be a gathering of friends on Monday, October 30th at the Kraus Gateway Center on Grand Avenue from 4.30 to 7.30 p.m. In lieu of flowers, please make contributions to the Iowa Legal Aid. Willard Harold Hoskin, a pillar of strength, kindness, warmth, and dedication, peacefully passed away on October 20th at the West 
Burlington Hospice House with his family at his side. Willard was born on September 25, 1928, to Alva Harrison Hoskin and Bessie Myrtle Jemison Hoskin at the Hoskin Farm in rural Kiyosakwa. Willard's journey through life was marked by enduring love, steadfast commitment, and a tireless dedication to his family and community. He began his education in the humble setting of the one-room schoolhouse at Taylor No. 1, eventually graduating from Kiyosakwa High School in 1946. After high school, Willard contributed his talents to Van Patten's Implement Company and Lee's Sales and Service, where his industrious spirit shone. It was on the floor of a roller rink where destiny brought him face-to-face with the love of his life, Waverly Camille Crenshaw. Following their wedding, they returned to Kiyosakwa and purchased the Alice Chalmers Implement Company and later started the first anhydrous ammonia ammonia enterprise. Willard expanded the Hoskin farm and worked the land for the rest of his career. His service to his community extended to his role on the Van Buren County Fair Board and then the Iowa State Fair Board. He passed on his love of adventure, tinkering, camping, inventing, storytelling, and sweets to his family. His uh, <clears throat> was usually found in his shop where he put pedal pull tractors well into his 90s. He always drew an audience for his jokes, riddles, and quippy stories. Willard and Waverly are survived by their beloved son, Michael Hoskin, and his wife, Debbie, of Kiyosakwa, as well as their four cherished granddaughters, Mindy, partner Ryan Torrey of Argyle, Texas, Jennifer, partner Daniel Lewis of Great Falls, Virginia, and Nikki, partner Damian Butts of Burlington, and Fallon Huffman of Kiyosakwa. They were also blessed with five great-grandchildren, Olivia Lyle, Cameron Butts, Hayden Huffman, Monroe Torrey, and Lachlan Lewis. A celebration of Willard's life will be held at the Kiyosakwa United Methodist Church on Saturday, October 28th at 10.30 a.m. The funeral home will begin accepting visitors at 2 p.m. on Friday, October 27th, at the Pedrick Funeral Home, where the family will be available to receive visitors from 5 to 7 p.m. And following the service, Willard will be laid to rest at Purdom Cemetery, followed by a luncheon at the church to honor his memory. In lieu of flowers, the family requests that contributions be made to a memorial in Willard's honor with the specific designation to be determined later. For those who wish to express their condolences and share cherished memories, you can visit the Cranston Funeral, wait, CranstonFamilyFuneralHome.com. Marvin Lavier Jud- Judkins of Pella was born to Joe and Atha Rubel Judkins in Osceola, Iowa on November 12, 1944. The family moved east of Liberty Center in 1947. He attended Liberty Center and then Southeast Warren High School, graduating in 1963. 
Beverly Oldacre, the daughter of William and Eileen Oldacre, and Marvin were married in August 1963. To this union, two children were born, Robert Allen and Sherry Ann. Marvin started attending the University of Iowa, earning a B.A. in American History in 1967 and an M.A.T. in American History and Education in 1970. They moved to Marshalltown in 1970, where Marvin taught 9th grade American History and coached 7th grade basketball and football at Lenahan Junior High School in Marshalltown. 1975, they moved to Carlisle, where he served as 7-12 as, uh, vice principal and later as assistant superintendent. Their children, Rob and Sherry, graduated from Carlisle High School. In 1984, he moved to Coon Rapids to serve as superintendent of schools and later also serving as Bayard uh, superintendent and then served as the first Coon Rapids Coon Rapids Bayard Superintendent. While there, he earned his Ph.D. from Iowa State University. In 1990, he moved to Centerville, where he served as the superintendent until retiring in 2002. He later worked as a part-time education director and business manager. Marvin and Bev moved to Indianola in 2010, and he retired from his part-time jobs in 2011. He continued supervising student teachers for two more years. In 2021, they moved to Pella. Marvin was a member of Rotary International in both Coon Rapids and Centerville, becoming a Paul Harris Fellow in Centerville. He was a member of the Iowa State Phi Delta Kappa and a charter member of School Administrators of Iowa. Marvin faced several health issues for several years and passed away on October 23rd at Mercy One West in West Des Moines. He attained the age of 78 years, 11 months, and 11 days. He is survived by his wife of 60 years, Bev. His uh, children, Robin Shannon uh, Judkins, Jordan and Callie Judkins of Marshalltown, and Blake or Sherry and J.B. Williams of Cabot, Arkansas. Of Marvin's original family, he leaves his brothers, Gerald and his wife, Christy, and Dennis and his wife, Cheryl, and brother-in-law, Richard, and his wife, Sandy Oldacre. It's also survived by many nieces and nephews. In lieu of flowers, contributions can be made to the Centerville Athletic Booster Club in Centerville, Iowa, or Coon Rapids Bayard Athletic Booster Club in Coon Rapids. Visitation with the family present will be on Friday, October 27th from 4 to 6 p.m. at the United Methodist Church in Pella. Funeral services Saturday, October 28th at 10 a.m. at the United Methodist Church in Pella. Continuing on with today's obituaries, Jackson H. Collins was born on May 13, 1930, the son of Myrtle Woodson Collins and John Harvey Collins. He passed away on Monday, October the 23rd, 2023, at his home. Jack, the youngest of seven children, was born on the family farm in Tippecanoe Township, Henry County, Iowa. He started his schooling in a one-room country school, Pleasant Point, and graduated from Mount Pleasant High School, class of 1948. In 1950, he enlisted in the United States Air Force, where he received training as a radio repairman. 
On June the 22nd of 1952, he married Miss Barbara C. Messer of Burlington, and they started their married life in Alaska, where he was stationed at Elmendorf Air Force Base, Anchorage. In the fall of 1953, he rotated to the lower 48, being posted to March Field at Riverside, California. On discharge in the fall of 1954, they remained in California, moving to Burlington in the fall of 1955. He continued working in consumer electronics until the fall of 1956, at which time he started work at International Resistance Company. While there, he transferred into the electronic engineering department, rising to the position of senior electronic engineer. He worked in this capacity until, the, until 1983, at which time he became plant manager for an electronic assembly plant in South Dakota. In 1999, they returned to Iowa and he accepted employment to salvage an electronic assembly division, which was fall, failing. This accomplished... He remained with that company until his retirement at age 73. Following retirement, he was a longstanding member of the Walnut Creek YMCA. Funeral services will be held on Thursday, October the 26th at 1 p.m. at the Murphy Funeral Home in Mount Pleasant. The family will receive friends from noon until time of service. Burial will follow in the Aspen Grove Cemetery in Burlington. A memorial has been established in his memory. Online condolences may be sent to the family at www.murphyfuneralandmonuments.com. Murphy Funeral Home of Mount Pleasant is caring for his arrangements. Eugene W. Crum of Earlham died peacefully on October the 23rd, 2023, on the family farm in Earlham, Iowa, surrounded by loved ones. Services will be held at 11 a.m. Tuesday, October the 31st at Van Meter United Methodist Church with burial to follow at the Iowa Veterans Cemetery. Visitation will be held prior to the services from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. Jean was born on June the 22nd of 1942 in Adair, Iowa to parents Leroy and Marion Correll Crum. He graduated from Adair Casey High School in 1961 and served in the United States Air Force from 1962 to 1966. On June 29, 1968, Jean married Jean Dietrich, and together they were blessed with three children, Christy, Kevin, and Curtis. Jean and Jane raised their family on the farm in Earlham, Iowa, which is where they spent their next 55 years of marriage. In lieu of flowers, please donate to St. Jude Children's Hospital in Jean's name. To sign an online condolence, visit our website at www.overtonfunerals.com. Next is Carol E. Yearns, who was a devoted husband and loving companion and passed away in Des Moines, Iowa on October the 19th of 2023. Visitation will be held on October the 29th from 2 to 4 p.m. at Caldwell Parish Funeral Home, 8201 Hickman Road, Urbandale. A memorial service will be held on Monday, October 30th, 10 a.m. at Trinity Las Americas United Methodist Church, 1548 8th Street in Des Moines. 
A private family burial will follow. Memorials may be made to the Neil Smith Wildlife Refugee Refuge, excuse me, near uh, near Prairie City, or to Trinity Las Americas United Methodist Church in Des Moines. To read the full obituary, please visit www.caldwellparish.com. And Francis Milburn, age 89, of Norwalk, passed away peacefully on October the 24th at Every Step Hospice Cavanaugh House in Des Moines. Visitation will be on Saturday, October the 28th from 1 to 3 p.m. at Coburn Funeral Homes in Colfax, Iowa. A joint service will be held at a future date on the passing of Lucille Ann Milburn, his wife of almost 69 years. Memorials may be directed to the Colfax Public Library or Every Step Hospice, and condolences may be left for the family at www.coburnfuneralhomes.com. The son of Frank Leeson Milburn and Margaret Walsh Milburn, Francis was born on January the 10th of 1934. He grew up with his sister Margaret Ann Clark in Colfax and graduated from Colfax High School as class president in 1952. Francis was drafted into the U.S. Army in 1953, where he was stationed at Fort Riley, Kansas. It was on a blind date that year that his life changed when he met and fell in love with a raven-haired beauty, Lucille Ann Bowles, who had just returned from doing service in the Air Force. They married the next year and started an amazing life together, which included the birth of five children, Kathy, Francis J., Karen, Patty, and Matthew. Francis strongly believed in service to his country and community, he belonged to JCs, American Legion, AMVETS, Knights of Columbus, Jasper County Korean Veterans, Colfax School Board, Indian Y Guides, Colfax Little League, Colfax Fire Department, and Colfax Library Board. Francis retired in 1996 from Mid-American, and he and Luann began to travel. His favorite destination was Paris, because visiting there was the lifelong dream of his beloved wife. The extra time also allowed Francis to pursue his passion for manicuring his lawn, and especially his hedges, which caught the eye of anyone traveling on Walnut Street. Throughout his married life, he supported Luann in her interest in home interiors and entertaining. Together they ran Milburn Decorating for ten years, and the various parties held at the Milburn home are legendary among family and friends. Francis loved to fish, but only in northern Minnesota mostly on Shell Lake, where the northern pike were thick. The quiet and the beautiful sunsets were irresistible, and frequent trips were made over 50 years of his life. A voracious reader, Francis always had a stack of books by his chair, and he kept a detailed list of all the authors and series that he favored. He also was an early adopter of technology and delighted his family with weekly emails labeled Another Saturday. In 2021, Francis and Luann moved to Holland Farms Assisted Living in Norwalk, where Francis was elected sheriff and became beloved by staff and residents alike. Francis was preceded in death by his son, Francis J., parents, sis, parents sister, and brother-in-law, Duane Clark. Linda, back to you. 
Well, returning to the main section, we have uh, several articles left. Why Iowa's members of Congress voted for Johnson. Lawmakers are ready for House to resume work after three weeks. Iowa's four Republican congressional members voted for Mike Johnson as Speaker of the House Wednesday as the chamber's slim GOP majority coalesced around a leader more than three weeks after hardliners ousted former Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Johnson, 51 of Louisiana, was formally elected Speaker in a 220 to 209 vote. Every Republican present voted for him, while every Democrat present voted for Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries of New York. Johnson was the fourth Speaker-designate chosen by House Republicans in the three weeks since McCarthy's ouster on October 3rd. The caucus previously chose U.S. Representatives Steve Scalise, Jim Jordan, and Tom Emmer as their choice for Speaker, but Scalise and Emmer withdrew before facing a vote of the full chamber, and Jordan endured three failed bids before ending his candidacy. All four of Iowa's members of Congress supported Jordan in the first round of voting, but U.S. Representative Marianne Miller-Meeks pulled her support and voted for different candidates in the subsequent rounds. After Miller-Meeks vote against Jordan, she said she received credible death threats that she had reported to police and added, I will not bend to bullies. The federal government could shut down in a few weeks if lawmakers do not agree on a spending deal. GOP angst about a short-term deal that kept the government funded for 45 days at the same levels is what led conservative hardliners to move to oust McCarthy. President Joe Biden has also asked Congress to pass a $106 billion package with funding for Ukraine, Israel, U.S. border security, and the Indo-Pacific. Democratic National Committee spokesperson Serafina Tatika blasted Joe Johnson's record in a statement. MAGA Republicans' new speaker-designate supports extreme nationwide abortion bans, Shatika said. He led the charge for Donald Trump denying President Biden's legitimate election win and tried to overthrow the votes of 81 million Americans. He's a leading proponent of slashing Social Security and Medicare. Mike Johnson is a carbon copy of the MAGA extremism that is deeply unpopular with Americans across the country. But here's what Iowa's members of Congress said about their votes. First District U.S. Representative Marianne Meeks, a Republican representing Southeast Iowa, posted a screenshot of the vote on social media. Representative Mike Johnson elected Speaker of the House. Congratulations, she wrote. Now let's put our resolution condemning Hamas and supporting Israel. Second District U.S. Representative Ashley Hinson, a Republican representing Northeast Iowa, said in a statement posted to social media before the vote, I look forward to calling Mike Speaker Johnson later today. 
Mike Johnson is a constitutional conservative and devout family man who is dedicated to advancing our conservative priorities and principles, Hinson said in the statement. He has united Republicans around a plan to advance our conservative agenda, moving single-subject appropriation bill, supporting Israel, securing our border, and continuing rigorous oversight of the Biden administration. It's time to put the chaos and dysfunction in the rear view and get back to work. Third District U.S. Representative Zach Nunn representing Metro Des Moines and Central and Southern Iowa, wrote in a statement posted on social media, it's time to get back to the people's work. The made-for-TV chaos engulfing Washington recently is partisan politics at its absolute worst, none said in the statement. We are elected to serve the people, but instead some are more, more focused on getting their five minutes of fame. The American people deserve better. That's why I've been fighting to restore sanity, forcing our nation's capital to operate with the more pragmatic and common sense approach we know in Iowa. That mission is far from over, but with today's vote, it's time to double down on the necessary work to address the most pressing needs facing our country reining in government spending, protecting Medicare and Social Security, passing a farm bill that supports Iowa's farmers and rural communities, securing our southern border, and supporting Israel, our strongest ally in the Middle East. People must come before politics. Lastly is 4th District U.S. Representative Randy Feenstra, who represents western and northwest and north-central Iowa, said in a statement that he, quote, proudly voted for Johnson. Mike is a strong conservative who will guide our Republican majority and support our work to hold the Biden administration accountable, rebuild our economy, secure our border, and stand up to China, Feenstra said in the statement. I have full confidence that under Speaker Johnson, we will continue to uphold our commitment to America and deliver for our families, farmers, mainstream businesses, and rural communities. Thank you, Linda. I will quickly run down the Bondurant for our school board candidates and Bondurant city council candidates. First, we've got Patrick Meyer. He's age 40. He grew up in Comanche. His current home is Bondurant. He has a bachelor's degree in accounting from the University of Northern Iowa. He's an active volunteer in the Bondurant community for more than 10 years. Stacy Sani, also running for the school board, grew up in Cedar Rapids. Her current home is in Bondurant. She's got a Bachelor of Science from Iowa State University, and her political experience includes Bondurant for our school board from 2020 to present and board president since 2022. Laurel Swanson, age 53, grew up in Fairfield, currently lives in Bondurant. She's got a bachelor's and master's of business administration degree from Drake University. Her political experience is a longtime community, school, and church volunteer. And incumbent Kayla Vandahar 
is age 34. She grew up in Pleasant Hill. She currently lives in Altoona, and she's got a master in business administration from Iowa State University and a bachelor's in accounting from Iowa State University. Her political experience includes Bondurant for our school board member 2022 to present, Bondurant for our Education Foundation treasurer from 2022 to present, Polk County Agricultural Extension District from 2015 to 2020, Bondurant Christian Church Preschool treasurer from 2018 to present. And there are two candidates running for the city council. Chris Driscoll, who's 38 years old, grew up in Sioux City, and has a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology and Business Management from St. Ambrose. He's appointed to the Bondurant City Council to complete a term with two years left. Angela McKinsky, McKinsey, excuse me, age 48, grew up in Runnels and Pleasant Hill. She's got a Bachelor's in Business Management from Upper Iowa University. For the last 90 minutes, your readers have been Scott Splavik and Linda Lundgren, It's been our pleasure to read for you. Now we'll take a short break to allow our next readers to get into place.
Welcome back. Your new readers are myself, Doug Kretzinger, and Teresa Whitaker. And we're going to now continue with articles from the Des Moines Register in the USA Today. And here's Teresa with our next article. Okay, we are in the opinion section, and I'm going to read an article, a Your, your Turn column from Robert Ludke, a guest columnist. Disability awareness should be about value. As we near the end of National Disability Employment Month, it is obvious that the most important reason to celebrate disability employment has been overlooked. Disability employment is an executive-led, long-term, organizational strategy that provides lasting value for shareholders and stakeholders alike. Too often, the private sector's focus on disability employment treats it as part of a corporate social responsibility campaign or compliance with legal mandates. There's a lot of attention given to employee resource groups, sensitivity trainings, and social media campaigns to tell the story of disability employment. Yes, those efforts are important and have a rightful place within every organization, but they are incremental steps, not a comprehensive approach to fostering greater disability employment across the economy. When disability employment is treated as a driver of long-term value creation, it has a proven ability to future-proof a business by opening trillions of dollars of global markets and innovating the next generation of goods and services able to meet human needs. Consider cruise control in vehicles, the text function or touch features on mobile phones, the electric toothbrush, and the Internet. All were innovated by people with disabilities. Each innovation quickly found its way to mainstream acceptance, enjoying widespread commercial success and fostering a positive change in how billions of people work and live, regardless of disability status. Because persons with disabilities must constantly adapt into a society that is not always accessible to them, it is no wonder their innovative skills are more pronounced than most employees. For example, a study by Coqual, formerly the Center for Talent Innovation, found that 75% of employees with disabilities in the United States have ideas that would drive value for their company, compared with 61% of employees without disabilities. Companies that harness the innovative potential of all their employees who identify as disabled stand to gain significant upside benefits. Research by Return on Disability found that the global population of persons with disabilities and their close friends and families is roughly 3.4 billion people, more than double China's population. Their spending power is over $13 trillion. Achieving a disability-inclusive business strategy starts at the top, with the CEO and board of directors. Only when leaders communicate their connection to disability will all employees feel comfortable doing so. This is not an act of charity or pity. Just imagine the value created if employees with disabilities are given permission to rechannel the ingenuity of masking disability to applying the traits of creativity, resourcefulness, and resilience to their jobs. Here are a few more ideas that connect disability employment to innovation, and ultimately to business strategy. Collaborate with suppliers to foster disability inclusion in supply chains. Rethink your approach to design and innovation. Innovation throughout the global economy is stunted because it is not open to a diverse set of entrepreneurs and employees. Persons with, disability, excuse me, persons with disabilities are innovating every day, so use their talents. Partner with local organizations that specialize in placing talent with disabilities into the workplace. 
and appreciate the intersectional nature of disability when doing so. Potential partners can be found working with veterans, people identifying as LGBTQ, or low-income populations. Engage a team of experts in accessible design so that inclusive design concepts are incorporated into physical office spaces. The potential payoff of harnessing the lived experiences of persons with disabilities is powerful and game-changing. Disability inclusion is not a compliance mandate or a niche market opportunity. Instead, it can unlock transformative solutions worth trillions of dollars and make society better far into the future. That again was by Robert Ledke, who is a consultant on business strategies and the author of Transformative Markets. He started his career as an intern for Senator Tom Harkin of Iowa, serving on the Subcommittee for Disability Policy, and later worked for Harkin as a legislative correspondent and legislative assistant. And continuing on the uh, Des Moines Register opinion page, this one is uh, written by Tim Olson, and it's entitled, or headlined, I'm a pastor. We need a conservation forward farm bill. As Congress starts to move beyond its weeks of paralysis following the ouster of House GOP Speaker Kevin McCarthy, members would do well to heed the advice of my Grandpa Olson. He said to me, Tim, when you rent a farm, you are to leave it better than you found it. Well, I heard my grandpa's voice echoed by farmers and church leaders at the Evangelical Environmental Network's Iowa Faith and Agriculture roundtables discussing the farm bill, whose future, together with that of farmers and producers across Iowa, is now in limbo. House Agriculture Committee Chairman Glenn G.T. Thompson has said the uncertainty over the House speakership fight has blown up any meaningful legislation making the Farm Bill and Iowa farmers collateral damage of congressional paralysis. In contrast, the Iowa farmers who gathered in restaurants, churches, and conference rooms for EEN's Faith and Agriculture Roundtables modeled a different style of leadership. We heard from farmers working to leave it better than they found it, even when it was hard. This included adopting novel management technologies like strip-till, no-till, and covering and cover cropping. While they confessed steep learning curves and being the crazy neighbor, they stuck with it and are now reaping the rewards. Higher yields, better soil health, lower input cost, and greater resilience to weather extremes like this year's drought, and less reliance on the safety net. Ray Gazer, that's G-A-E-S-S-E-R, former president of the American Soybean Association and host of EEN's Roundtable at the Iowa Soybean Association in Ankeny, is a pioneer of agriculture innovations in soil, health, and water quality. Calling his 5,400-acre farm near Corning, Iowa, heaven on earth, he describes being a farmer as a privilege with the responsibility to care for the land to serve God and his community. While the gazers fully implemented no-till in their corn-soybean rotations in 1991, a destructive four-inch-per-hour rainstorm prompted them to start cover cropping to save their soil from erosion. Ten years later, Ray reports faster water infiltration, improved nutrient sequestration, resilient soil biology, improved crop yields, and reduced input expenses. 
Ray's experience mirrors findings of a 2021 study documenting a net income increase for Iowa farmers who adopted soil conservation practices of $63.85 an acre for corn and $36.79 an acre for soybeans. Despite these savings, only 4% of Iowa farmers currently use cover crops. For the evangelical farmers at EEN's Farm Bill Roundtables, passing down a creation care legacy not only makes dollar sense but carries a sense of calling. Iowa farmers are on the front lines of caring for the soil. Farm Bill conservation programs empower farmers and landowners to live into the holy duty of enhancing soil health. The 2023 Farm Bill reauthorization represents a critical opportunity to help Iowa farmers achieve their soil health mission. To do this, new conservation funding passed last year must be preserved in full. Congress must come together now to swiftly advance a conservation-forward farm bill or risk failing our farmers. The Reverend Tim Olson is the one who wrote this. He is Upper Midwest Coordinator for the Evangelical Environmental Network. Okay, and I'm going to turn to the letters to the editor. Our first one, a close look, shows Josh Mandelbaum is the best choice. I take my responsibility to vote very seriously. I've researched the candidates to see who aligns with my views and make my decision. I am proud to support Josh Mandelbaum for Des Moines mayor. He is a dynamic young leader who cares deeply about his community and will bring his passion and vision to our city. Des Moines would be fortunate to have Josh Mandelbaum as our mayor. And that was from Deb McMahon of Des Moines. Our next letter, Westergaard Service, has earned my vote. I hope that voters in the upcoming Des Moines City Council elections are careful when it comes to listening to the false narratives that are being spread on social media platforms and at our doorsteps. In my opinion, Iowa Citizens for Community Improvement is wrong when it claims that Linda Westergaard has never accomplished anything and she doesn't listen to the residents of Ward 2. Instead of promoting the candidate this left-wing group supports, all it does is talk about how Westergaard supposedly has been. This kind of personal attack does not help anyone think through the process. I will be voting for Linda Westergaard to continue representing Ward 2 on the Des Moines City Council because I know she cares, she has worked hard for our neighborhoods, she has a long record of accomplishments, and because she makes herself available. Phone number given is present at the council meetings and workshops, attends neighborhood meetings and events, coffee with Linda in various areas in her ward, etc. She listens to her constituents. And that was from Sue McPole of Des Moines. Our next, Bozen's resume puts her at the top. Connie Bozen is uniquely qualified to be mayor of Des Moines. She has demonstrated leadership skills as a school board member for 14 years, school board president twice, treasurer for Invest DSM, president of the East High Foundation, and as an at-large city council member for the past five years. In that role, she has shown kindness and energy, especially in reaching out to the citizens across the city following the flood of 2018. Bozen cares deeply about Des Moines residents and businesses. As a business owner, her financial management experience is a valuable asset for thoughtful and prudent decision-making for the future of our city. Her extensive history of skilled decision-making and leadership in many arenas would greatly benefit Des Moines. Let's elect Connie Bozen as our first women mayor. And that was from Gloria Hoffman of Des Moines. And our last letter, Iowa needs seizure supports for schools. 
There needs to be immediate action taken in the Iowa Senate to ensure that all children in school are safe. I am a mother of a school-aged child with epilepsy, and I have, am terrified to send my daughter Isla to school. Isla experienced her first seizure when she was 18 months old, and she has been living with epilepsy ever since. One of her most alarming seizures lasted 15 minutes, resulting in an ambulance trip to the hospital. It is critical that Isla or Isla is surrounded by people who recognize and respond quickly to her seizures. Therefore, I am calling on the Iowa Senate to pass House File 608 and support the over 4,400 children living with epilepsy in Iowa. The Seizure Safe School Bill would ensure school personnel are trained in seizure first aid and require an individual seizure action plan for each student. Twenty-three other states, including Illinois, Minnesota, and Missouri, have passed legislation to give school staff the tools they need to respond properly to seizure disorders. Iowa must act now and not let our kids fall behind. This legislation has already waited six years too long. Iowa's children should be the state's first priority. And that letter was from Sarah Schuling of Johnston. And before I read the uh, you, you, uh, opinion on USA Today, here's a note that at the request of our listeners, Iris is moving the air times of some of our newspapers. The Mason City Globe Gazette and Fort Dodge Messenger have been combined into a one-hour show that you will hear at noon. 1 p.m., it's the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. 2 p.m., you'll hear the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. Your Cedar Rapids Gazette is now at 3 p.m. each day. 4 p.m., it's the Sioux City Journal. At 5, you can hear the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil. And 6 p.m. is the rebroadcast of the Des Moines Register. At 8, you'll hear readings from the Iowa Source on the Iowa Hour. At 9 p.m., it's Golden Radio. And 10 p.m. is the Wall Street Journal. And we wind up the day with the New York Times at 11. And here is, um, I've just lost it. Here is the opinion uh, on USA Today, the first opinion here. It says, uh, it's for by Tim Suarez, House Chaos, a Symptom of GOP's Illness. And it reads, In the three weeks since House Republicans elected to descend into chaos, terrorists launched the deadliest attack against Jews since 1945. America's commander-in-chief, in response, has dispatched two carrier strike groups and thousands of U.S. military personnel to the edges of a war zone, one that could spiral out of control with one missile strike. Our nation, meanwhile, lunches, lurches day by day closer to a self-made fiscal disaster which only the House of Representatives, by constitutional design, can prevent. Then there are the everyday matters that Americans should be able to count on their elected representatives to address. Things like grocery prices wrecking family budgets, sky-high interest rates pricing workers out of buying a home, chaos at our border with Mexico so bad that it's overwhelming local governments as far away as Chicago and New York, millions of students still so far behind in school because of COVID-19 shutdowns that they might never catch up. You know, the little things. At least little in the eyes of a small fraction of House Republicans who are determined to hand the next presidential election to Joe Biden and ensure that Democrats control both the House and Senate for years to come. On Tuesday, the Burn It Down caucus torched a perfectly fine candidate for Speaker, Tom Emmer from Minnesota. Two weeks ago, they lit up another well-qualified candidate, Steve Scalise from Louisiana. And three weeks ago, 
The chaos clowns dumped Kevin McCarthy of California the first time in the history of these United States that a House Speaker was fired in the middle of a congressional session. Finally, on Wednesday, the Republican caucus settled on Louisiana's Mike Johnson as the new House Speaker. Johnson, a lawyer first elected in 2016, is perhaps, perhaps best known for lobbying fellow House Republicans to vote against certifying Biden as the winner of the 2020 presidential election. But why did House Republicans put the nation through this embarrassing and dangerous ordeal? No one seems to know. Matt Getz, the Florida representative who initially led the descent into chaos by chasing out McCarthy, certainly doesn't. Important life tip. If you find yourself following Getz anywhere, turn around and run. Don't walk the other way. That's in parentheses. Now, this is not just another partisan rant by another progressive journalist. I haven't voted for a Democrat for president in this century. Didn't vote for the Republican nominee in the past two presidential elections either, but that's a different story, and that's in parentheses. I've witnessed during six decades of living that Americans and the nation as a whole tend to flourish better when right moderate Republicans are in charge, and I'm old enough to remember practical conservatism, the kind that champions individual liberty, a regulated but vibrant capitalistic uh, economy, strong national security, the core roles of faith and family and personal well-being, and the well-founded belief that individuals can with appropriate support, lift themselves and their children onto a sustainable path to prosperity. But it seems that practicality is a lost virtue among certain factions of today's Republican Party. Today, far too many Republicans and so-called conservatives believe that if you say something, no matter how out of touch with reality, often enough and loud enough, then it's true. Well, that's nonsense, of course. But it's a nonsense that has taken hold of enough Republican leaders and Republican voters that the health of the party is in critical condition. And with it, I'm afraid the long-term health of our nation also is in jeopardy. The chaos in the House was only one symptom of this disease. Another even worse sign of the GOP's morbidity is the outrageous, dangerous, pernicious popularity of Donald Trump. How can any true conservative vote for a candidate who has demonstrated such disdain for the Constitution, for the rule of law, for national security? But there, here we are, not where we should be, not where anyone, even Democrats, should want us to be, yet it is here where we have landed after asking Thelma and Louise to take the wheel. Um, and so I am left with questions. For the burn-it-down wing of the GOP and for those who carry their ma uh, matches, why are you helping Joe Biden win re-election? Why are you making Democrats appear to be competent and rational by comparison? Why are you poisoning the Republican Party and the conservative movement for emerging generations of leaders and voters? Why are you risking American security and prosperity for ill-defined, unarticulated goals? Why do you keep giving a platform to extremist oddballs like Matt Getz, Gates and uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene? Just how low does Donald Trump need to sink before you wise up and acknowledge his self-centered recklessness? When will the Republican Party and the conservative movement heal themselves? Meanwhile, the world burns and Republicans can't put down the, the fiddle. Tim Suarez is deputy option opinion editor of the USA Today, and he's the one who wrote this article. Got a couple of minutes here before Dear Abby. Do you got anything over there? I do have a few um, 
sports on TV. Some times here for people to catch some sports today, Thursday, uh, October 26th. These are Eastern times, so I'm going to let you convert instead of me trying to convert as I read here. <laughs> we have college football tonight, 7 p.m. on CBSSN, LIU Brooklyn at Central Connecticut State. 7.30 p.m. we have ESPN. Uh, is showing Syracuse at Virginia Tech. ESPN2 is showing Georgia State at Georgia Southern. ESPNU, SC State at NC Central. We have uh, college soccer, men's at 10 p.m. on PAC-12N, Washington at UCLA. College soccer women's at 5 p.m., PAC-12N, Stanford at Southern Cal. 6 p.m., ACCN Wake Forest at Miami. 6.30 p.m., SECN Alabama at Missouri. 7 p.m., PAC-12N is showing California at UCLA. 8 p.m. on ACCN, Clemson at Notre Dame. 8.30 p.m., SECN Texas A&M at LSU. And for NFL football, 8.15 p.m. tonight on Prime Video, we have Tampa Bay at Buffalo. Okay, I'm going to uh, take us right into uh, Dear Abby now. And it's called Secrets and Infidelity Loom Over Parents of Young Boy. Dear Abby, I am 26 and have been with my boyfriend, Trey, for eight years. We have an 18-month-old son. When I was six months pregnant, I went through Trey's phone and saw he was cheating on me. I was humiliated and told my best friend because I couldn't keep it in any longer. It hurt me deeply. I chose to forgive Trey because we were starting a family and I felt I owed it to my baby to be at least try. But I constantly think about the things I saw on his phone and I don't trust him. Even if I think about him going out somewhere without me, I get terribly anxious. I'm not going to lie. I wasn't a saint throughout our relationship, but when I got pregnant, I was all about Trey and our family. I love him, but I can't seem to be happy. We are polar opposites. I'm affectionate and love my family. He's dry and doesn't care for my family or his. I also feel we resent each other. Sometimes I want to break up with him so I can find someone I can trust and have peace with them, with peace with, but when, then I feel guilty. Our son is a daddy's boy. He loves Trey and is always asking for daddy when his father is out at work. It would break my heart for my son not to see him as often as he does with us living together. My parents were never together. I always said if I had a child, I'd make sure that that child had their mom and dad together, but I'm not happy with my relationship. Please give me some advice. It's signed Failing in New Jersey. Well, dear Failing, talk to Trey, tell him how you feel and why. Has he continued to see other women? How does he feel about the status of your relationship? How important is it to him to be front and center in his son's life? The two of you are not married, thank heavens, so separating would not be complicated or costly from a legal perspective. Of course, he would have to support his child financially, and so would you. You both deserve to be happy, and don't be surprised if you learn that Trey feels the same way about your relationship. Dear Abby, that was that one. Now here's another one. Dear Abby, I have a daughter and two granddaughters, 16 and 24. I live with my daughter, her boyfriend, and my younger granddaughter. My daughter and my oldest granddaughter got into a heated argument over the phone about something the boyfriend posted on social media. They are no longer speaking and have blocked each other's phone calls. I feel lost. We used to all three spend one Saturday a month together, go on vacations, and have family dinners on holidays, so how do I get over this? Signed, Missing It in Maryland. Dear Missing It, 
A way to get past this would be to extend your social life beyond your immediate family. If you do, you will have more distraction and less time to brood about something that you cannot control. You can still see your older granddaughter separately if you wish, just not under the same circumstances as before until she blows over. All right, so that then brings us to the end of the Des Moines Register for today. I'm Doug Kretzinger. My partner at the microphone has been Teresa Whitaker. Earlier, earlier you heard uh, Linda Lundgren and Scott uh, Slavic, sorry. And you can listen to IRIS programs on any computer or smart device at any time at the iowaradioreading.org. Support for today's readings comes from the Des Moines Register, Iowa Public Radio, Iowa PBS, and bensoundmusic.com. Thank you for listening to IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.